Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 51. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you been doing, Fooleman? I've been doing all right. I actually once again missed the uh, the Saturday night game. I had some social life going on. I actually went to see the Toronto Furies triumph over the Markham Thunder. Uh, if you haven't gotten out to see a Furies game in your time, it's usually out at the MasterCard Arena in the West End. I recommend it. It is a good time. And uh, the tickets are orders of magnitude more affordable than the Leafs will ever be. So certainly giving a plus one to that. I also seems like I missed a good Leafs game to miss, is how I would put it. Yeah, yeah. It was um, maybe their worst game of the year. So that's it, bad. It, it, it was not good at all. Um, they made the Coyotes look like the 95 Devils, you know? Like, mm. the, the Leafs generated pretty much nothing offensively. Certainly nothing in the way of high-end chances. Um, you, you get a good look at why Nick Jalmerson, like, destroys offenses whenever he is on the, on the ice. Like, he, first off, the dude just friggin' blocks everything. Mm-hmm. But, like, he's always in the right place. He's a very impressive defensive defender. Like, his, his defensive numbers are best in the league. I remember um, Mike McCurdy was saying the other day that, like, the opposite of Connor McDavid is Nick Yalmerson because McDavid is destroyer of worlds on offense, not much on defense, and Yalmerson's defensive stats are, like, going off the chart. Like, the bars just extend out of the field. Um, and even though he doesn't provide much in the way of offense, he's one of those rare guys who genuinely is just a great defensive defender. Yeah, yeah, he's phenomenal at it. Um, that was a good trade by by Cheka. Um, he, he's made a lot of moves. Not yeah. all have been successful, but that was undoubtedly one of them that was. Yeah, there's actually a, a, a line that uh, Katja has said to describe him, is that like he's very good at trading two dimes for 21 pennies. And like he's done a lot of little moves where he makes like a marginal upgrade. And, uh, you know, in fairness to Cheka, a couple of them have been more than that, but... Because he's so handcuffed by the financial state of his team, he can't seem to really make a home run swing a lot of the time. And you sort of think something like, do all of the good moves that he's made in terms of trades and whatever get wiped out by the decision to, say, draft Strom over Marner? Like, are the, all of those things... I don't think that was his decision. No, was that before his time? I uh, think so. I think that was like Don Maloney or someone. Yeah, um, but the point in general is just like when you can only make trivial gains, you're sort of at the whims of like, if you lose one big move or one thing doesn't go your way, there you go. Like, yeah. They're definitely a team that lacks some game breakers, particularly up front. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it doesn't help that they are very, very injured right now. Um, yeah. but they played a really, really impressive game mm-hmm. and it's always difficult to tell with these sorts of games, you know, how much is it? oh, wow, the Coyotes had a great game plan and stuck to it and they executed well versus the Leafs laid an egg. And obviously it's a mix of both. I mean, the Coyotes don't do that regularly. If they did that regularly, they'd beat first in the league. Yeah. Because they, that's that's how little the Leafs generated, right? Um, so I, I do think part of it was was self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. In particular, um, the Matthews, Kapanen, Marlowe line had a awful game. After, coming off maybe their best game, the... In the, in the game prior against Vegas, where mm-hmm. they dominated a very good shots team. Uh, it definitely did kind of look like the team maybe uh, celebrated the win in Vegas a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> I was all or, happy. Or maybe like... Austin had too much of um, 
He had too much of his mom's chi- uh, chicken tortilla soup, which I've heard is very good. <laughs> Got that home cooking. Yeah, I, I did. This is like the epitome of sports writer reading in too much to little results and stuff like that. But I was thinking how good it was that like the team spent a night in Vegas and then came out the next night and played really, really well. Uh, and, you know, maybe they were just delaying the celebrations a bit, or maybe they just didn't, you know, have it for whatever of the thousand reasons that can yeah. happen. There doesn't so. have to be a very easily tied to reason. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so basically the only players who could walk out with any sort of pride, in my opinion, uh, were Nazem Kadri and William Nylander, mm-hmm. who, um, you know, I, th- I think, and we'll get, it to, we'll get to this later with what we're going to talk about, but I think Nylander has been the least best forward for the past 10 games or so. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. You know, been close to point a game over that stretch. Numbers have been outstanding. Um, he's getting his shot blocked less. Is something that I've noticed also. Uh, we talked about this earlier, is that he seemed to have a real proclivity for just whipping it into the guy's pads. Mm-hmm. And so there was a result where he would he was even early in his return to the Leafs. He was putting up good Corsi numbers, but his Fenwick numbers, which tried to account for block shots, were lagging way behind. And now they're actually last I checked his Fenwick numbers were a little better. So apparently he's figured out don't shoot it into the guy's legs quite so often. Um, and, and so that's been encouraging to see. I honestly do believe this. This may sound rosy or like I'm high off a recent stretch, but I think that William Nylander is going to turn out to have a surprisingly good value contract in a couple of years. That's my honest belief. Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me. I don't think he's ever going to put up huge counting numbers. No. Um, partially because he's not going to play on the first unit power play, and that that's where a lot of players goose their results. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think he's going to be a very respectable, like an above average first liner. He he mm-hmm. right now he's driving play. If you look at things like RAPM, he's driving play at uh, at a first line rate. Uh, and he's scoring, his scoring is a bit lower. His scoring is like, I think, average second liner right now. That's over the course of the whole season. Yeah. Um, I'm confident that will, will come up. And I, I think this is, this is the William Nienander we're going to get for the next six years. Yeah. And, which, and which if is so, a very I'm good thing. super happy about that. So yeah, that's kind of a nice, happier development in that thing where there's been a lot of upset over that whole saga for four months or so, but yeah. Yeah, one thing worth noting, I mean, it's inarguable that Nylander and Kadri together are facing weak competition, mm-hmm. right? Or certainly weak competition relative to their capabilities as a player. Yeah, it's it's fair to say that. And, and you know, right now, uh, Tavares is taking a lot of the tough work. And, you know, I, I'm not averse to that. It is what it is. But, uh, you know, the whole point of having a good third line is to beat up on weak competition. <laughs> so to sum up. Right. There, yeah. there is a concern of like, you know, I, I try and use these context-adjusted stats, which adjust for usage and co- in terms of competition and zone starts and teammates and things like that. Um, but there's always the concern that they don't do that perfectly. And I think one example of that is actually James Van Riemsdyk. The last three years, his numbers via RAPM and Michael McCurdy's isolated threat, which purport to do exactly what I just said, they were very, very high. And then he leaves Toronto in the kind of very peculiar bubble of usage he was in. Yeah. And his... Shot numbers now are ghastly. And I think this is a mistake I made. I think I perhaps underrated the effect of what Babcock was doing with that particular group with the Marner, Bozak, JVR trio, and later the Bozak, JVR, Brown trio. 
Um, I, I was I took those stats, those context adjusted stats at face value. I'm like, okay, I mean, looks like JVR is actually doing something pretty good over the last three years. Um, but then, you know, you're moving from that rather particular usage and things have gone a little awry. Now, it's not like conclusive, right? Like it's, it's he's played 50 games in a new team. He was injured so and came back from that. So mm-hmm. it's not like a declarative statement. And like one counterexample doesn't prove that the stat as a whole is failing in some way. But it's something to keep in mind. I don't really have the answer for this. Of like, is it adjusting properly for Nylander and Kadri's um, usage? And those two guys are like two of the four best forwards on the team in terms of play driving by these numbers. Well, I, I don't know. But I, the honest answer is I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is hard to define. And I'll tell you the truth. I have thought for a long time that the stats community came to a conclusion quite early about everyone playing everyone and competition basically washing out. And that's now been kind of tempered a little bit. But I think that there's still kind of an ingrained feeling that quality of competition really doesn't matter that much. And I keep thinking over and over again that that's probably not the case. Like Kevin, who sometimes guests on our podcast and who writes for our site, had a tweet recently about how Travis Dermott is one of the most dominant uh, Corsi Rel players in the last couple years. And I find myself thinking, is there any way that quality of competition isn't playing a pretty significant role there? Like it just has to. Um, in my opinion. Now, some of that, you know, with, with Corsi Rel is also, who are you playing instead of? Who's not on? Uh, who's on when you're not on and vice versa? But I find myself seeing situations like this where you get like a dominant third pair defenseman or something like that, or when you see really wild swings in guys' results tied to usage. And to be fair, I think Nylander has done well at his best in other types of usage. You know, I don't think he's taken, like, really, really tough minutes all the time, but he's done pretty well. But there are times with guys like Tyler Bozak or something where suddenly they put up great shooting results or whatever, or that weird stretch that we had last year where JVR, Brown, and Bozak formed, like, a dominant possession line. And Mm -hmm. I can't help thinking there's something going on there in terms of usage that is just probably not being addressed if we're just saying that those three players have suddenly figured out how to play elite two-way hockey or something like that so yeah it's it's bizarre because like these what these stats do is they they take into account you know where every who everyone is on the ice at any given time mm-hmm. right and then the results about that and basically um a regression attributes those results to to those to those effects which are in this case the players right and uh, it, it works well in theory. It's an idea that's been used in basketball a fair amount, right? So the, yeah. the theory is sound, but the one of the underlying assumptions, I think, and this is something Tyler Dello remarked on a couple times, is that not all on-the-fly shifts are equal. And I can buy that a lot of them are quite similar, but you know, there, I'm sure there are probably cases where someone's usage is carefully managed so that you know, their on-the-fly shift skewed more towards one direction. Maybe they're closer to offensive zone shifts than defensive zone shifts through no fault of, or through no doing of the player themselves, right? Mm. And this is just a theory. I don't, I think with current data, it's pretty hard to account for this. And I think these stats generally do a good job. One thing I, I think it should be mentioned is that the Leafs are in a spot that is unique 
relative to most NHL teams in that they have three first-line caliber centers and three first-line or thereabouts caliber wingers, Mm -hmm. right? So the the common refrain for quality competition, not that it doesn't matter, is that it doesn't matter as much as quality of teammates. And generally, if you are playing third-line opposition, you also have third-line teammates. Well, if you're the Leafs and you're playing third-line opposition, you have one of Nazem Kadri or William Nylander or, you know, Kapanen uh, on on the ice. So your quality of teammates is much higher. And that was the same for JVR last year, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, JVR was playing third-line minutes with third-line quality of competition, or sorry, with third-line quality of uh, quality of teammates players, but those were Tyler Bozak and Mitch Marner. And similarly, Mitch Marner was playing with JVR and Bozak and all, so on and so on. Yeah. Right? Like, just looking at time on ice to and where they are in the relative ranking of their team to like judge the player, it doesn't work in Toronto's case because of their ridiculous forward depth, right? It's like, if you're doing that for Team Canada, you wouldn't be like, oh yeah, um, Eric Stahl's a fourth liner. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's fair to say. Uh, just an aside thing, um, I-, I was wondering if we can do this uh, a particular way because this has come up a couple of times uh, recently for me. The word regression is used a lot in analysis, and I know that it's, mm-hmm. it's like a useful statistical tool, and yet it's not something that is mm-hmm. in popular usage. Uh, and so I'm wondering if we could just like quickly explain what that is. My extremely dumbed down understanding of it is when you have sort of a complicated system like a hockey game, regression analysis is a way of trying to strip out all those other variables that can go up and down and focus on one variable by accounting for it in a lot of situations. How close is that to being true? Oh, <laughs> uh, it's not horrifically off, I would say. So That's basically, what I aspire to. Um, it's <laughs> yeah. So it's a way to estimate the relationships among variables. So you have mm. a variable that you want to predict, and you have several. You know, it could be a huge amount of explanatory variable variables which purport to, which you specify they have some sort of relation to that uh, that uh, variable that you want to predict, right? And what the regression does is essentially does an optimization problem to uh, get the estimates of those, those predictive, or sorry, those explanatory variables. Mm-hmm. Uh, it optimizes them to be as, quote unquote, close to um, the explaining the actual phenomenon as possible, okay. right? And there, this is a very, very dumbed-down version. There's a lot of complications here, but that that's the core of it, right? There's a lot of kind of add-ons to to this sort of idea. But the basic idea is that there's some sort of optimization there that uh, chooses the uh, estimates of each of the explanatory variables to isolate the impact of those variables on the predicted variable. So something like if we're trying to explain that's what it tries goals, to do. one of the things we might try and look at as an explanatory variable is shots. Does that make sense as like a starting point? And then we would look at, you know, volume of shots or shot location or stuff like that. But we would be trying to figure out how much those two things go together. And by doing... Yes, and that's exactly how... Not exactly how, but that's one... Like, that's kind of how... Expected goals models are a form of regression where the the predicted variable, the thing we want to predict or the thing we want to model, is whether um, a shot is a goal or not, right? Like the probability of that. Yeah. And our explanatory variables could be, where was the shot taken? What type of shot was it? Was there pre-shot movement? And we don't have the data for that yet, but this is kind of in theory. Um, Who took the shot? Yeah. Who was the goalie? 
right? It, a shot on Carey Price is affected go in than the same shot on Vesa Toscana. Right. So, yeah, that that's basically how regression works. And, like, uh, this is a very, very simplified setup. But yeah. that's that's the idea. Yeah, okay. Uh, essentially, it's, it's the... To make it slightly more mathy, it's the conditional expectation of the dependent variable mm. fixing the independent variables. So when we're taking like a complex thing like, you know, a hockey game, and what we're doing here is mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out what are the chances that a goal is going to happen or something like that. Um, th- this is a process that allows us to try and figure out how much individual things matter, how much shots yeah, are doing. Yeah, and, and in the case it. of like... In the case of like isolated threat or RIPM, it's it's a way to estimate how the players are impacting the um, ability of their of their team to generate more shots or chances or goals when they're on the ice. Right. So so we're trying to say okay, That's how much is Austin it. Matthews doing in terms of driving goals? Yes. It's treating him almost as like a variable in and of himself, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and a, a way to think about this is that it's a supercharged with or without you. Okay. So, right, so it's so better like than just with you're on, you're off. It's you're on. Yes, because and... the thing is, if I say Austin Matthews with William Nylander, it does X, but Austin Matthews with with Kasperi Kapanen does Y. Well, mm-hmm. they also face different people. The other teammates are different. Um, they might be they might have different usage. So in theory, these regression models account for all those other factors as well. Okay, so, so it so... makes it more um, more robust and. Like, realistically, with the how complex hockey is and the amount of variables that change, like, no human can eye-spot wowies mm-hmm. and get a full picture the way a computer can when it just does, solves an optimization problem. Right. So, in the so, ideal world, we would know all of these variables and exactly how much they matter and exactly how much tweaking one of them increases your chances of a goal. Like, that would be the, the perfect um, ideal that we'll never get to reach, but something like that. In, in the context of an XG model, yes. But yeah. the other thing worth considering is that, like, these are not magic, right? Like, yeah. the, they're, how effective and how powerful your model is depends on the process that you're trying to model. Some things are very, very hard to model. And there's a lot of randomness there, right? Right. So you might not get a ton of explanatory power. Yeah, if you're if you're sort so, of inputting into a process yeah. where it's like, well, sometimes the bounces are just going to go the other way, and there's not yeah, like, a like lot put, you can put, do. putting a very facile thing here. Let's let's pretend that like there, there's actually just some Wizard of Oz guy in, behind a curtain just flipping a coin, you know, just to judge uh, how whether a shot is a goal or not. And actually, nothing else matters. Yeah. Right. Well, then, and we don't have access to the coin. Well, then, actually, our models are going to be kind of shitty. Yeah, we're going to keep guessing right, that just, something we, matters and being wrong because only the coin matters. <laughs> exactly. So, like, it, it, it depends on how closely your model approximates the truth. And there, there's a saying in stats that all models are wrong, but some are useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's meant to convey the fact that all, every single model that we pr- pr- uh, propose is a simplification of reality to some extent. Right. Right. Um, because that's what we can model. And, you know, we're getting better at modeling more and more complex things. But still, there there's no model that is perfectly unilaterally correct. But it can still be useful. And that that's what I think these are. Now, again, going back to this context, the RAPM context, it's still unclear to me just how good they are. Mm-hmm. Um, off the top of my head, I don't know their 
repeatability or their correlation to uh, like future success, which um, if Evolving Wild, who's the maker of the stat, hasn't done that, that'd be a good idea for them to do. Not to volunteer them for more work because they already do a, a ton. Yeah. But that would be something I'd be interested in seeing. Um, so I don't know the answer to that. It's been very bullish on guys like William Neander, uh, Kasperi Kapitan, John Tavares, Nazem Kadri, Travis Dermott, and Jake Gardner this year. Those are off the top of my head. Those are the Leafs' best performers in this stat mm-hmm. this season. Andreas yeah. Janssen too, actually. Um, and then like the worst performers. I can actually. I'm just going to pull this up now, so I'm not, you know, whistling Dixie here. Yeah. Um, the worst performers. Actually, okay. Do you want to guess who the worst performer is? Uh, on the Leafs this season, in terms of driving Corsi. In terms of driving Corsi, I'm going to say Patrick Marlowe. You are correct. I um, wish I were know, not. Do you want to guess who's second? I'll give you a clue. He's. Yeah. Um, I'll give you a clue for the second. He's on the fourth line. Uh, is it Tyler Ennis? It is. You're oh, good at this. Yeah. Okay. okay <laughs> well, the next two are Le- the next two are Leafs defensemen. Uh, okay. Um, Hainsey and Zaitsev. <laughs> You're very good at this. So you can immediately tell that, like, yeah, this does actually kind of reflect the people who pe- Leafs fans have been annoyed at, and like, oh, these guys haven't really been, had great on ice results, yada yada yada, right? Yeah. Now the surprising one comes in where Mitch Marner, and I've alluded to this before, but I don't think I've ever said it this explicitly, but Mitch Marner is like pretty much a replacement level forward in this me- in this metric this year, mm-hmm. right? So a couple caveats there. One, this metric can be a little noisy year to year. Last year, Mitch Marner was above average at it. Yeah. Right? Um, so like, I don't think he has suddenly gotten way worse at hockey. I think it's just, you know, hockey can be a random sport. And these are in single seasons based on potentially small samples right this is another thing I, I should mention with like regression not being a magic wand there's no math that can make up for a lack of data right in this case mitch marner has like maybe 150 minutes away from john Tavares. it's going to be really hard to separate those two out and then there's also the fact that um hockey players aren't are not necessarily they don't have necessarily like linear effects that are constant among everyone right like mitch marner might be better with john Tavares. um in a like kind of exponential way like they feed off each other and make both of each other better so like one plus one is not two it's three there you know yeah there's like a bonus that comes from how well they match exactly exactly so (laughs) yeah so um to my knowledge this is based on like a kind of like a linear effect model which Mm -hmm. is um a fine assumption to make Uh, it's very very hard to to do so otherwise without getting into like non-parametric regression which it, it the thing but under the hood they have to do some other stuff here in order to make in order to get rid of collinearity which is where your explanatory variables are correlated with one another and that that makes it hard to tease out individual impact so they do some stuff under the hood for that but they'd also have to do like some sort of non-parametric thing to account for like possible non-linear effects between players um so yeah th- that aside the, the point is marner hasn't had great success in this regard this season and predominantly due to poor results away from Tavares. Neither has Austin Matthews. And and that's like kind of a mild concern, mm-hmm. right? That we've alluded to before where, you know, he has absolutely brilliant individual scoring, but then he hasn't like driven a line in terms of shots or chances the way you would expect. And to some extent, it doesn't matter because he's so good at taking his chances that 
you know, he can operate at a bit of a deficit in terms of chance quantity. You yeah. know he's going to take more of his than the opponent does. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, from everything yeah. we see about his ability to finish. Uh, yeah, so, so I think, you know, bringing this back around to me as sort of man-on-the-street-ish person on uh, my perspective on this is that, you know, we had a running joke for a while that uh, a metric is good if it says William Nylander is good and a metric is bad if it says William Nylander is bad. And that was us, you know, memeing a little bit. But I do still feel like you need a bit of a prior that is just your understanding of the game of hockey. And you don't want to be too invested in that. You know, you don't want to be too invested in, I see the eye test, or I can count points, or I can do any of these, you know, these kind of basic things over a more sophisticated model that can do all sorts of things that my brain can't process. But at the same time, when the model is telling you something that you're like, this is really wild to me. And, you know, like the classic example from a while ago on Leafs Twitter was Cody Franson. Um a prominent mm-hmm. Leafs Twitter personality concluded, uh, I shouldn't be unfair to him. He produced a stat that kind of suggested Cody Franson was the best defenseman in the NHL. And that's kind of crazy. Now that said, you can say, okay, Cody Franson does some things well. Maybe Cody Franson is underrated. Maybe Cody Franson is underappreciated by the market of NHL general managers because he looks uh, not especially fast and he's not as physical as they want. All of that would make sense to me, but you have that sort of that, that point. And it's not fair to damn a whole model, um, by saying like, okay, here's the extreme case, but I'm always kind of in that zone where I'm thinking, is this close enough to what I previously understand that I can sort of accept it? Or is this so far aside that I really have to sit back and say, I need more here, um, to really believe this counterintuitive result. I just find myself with quality of competition seeing a lot of results where I'm thinking there seems to be something there that it's not quite accounted for. And that doesn't make the model bad or useless. Like you said, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. Um, These models are really useful. It's just, uh, I find myself thinking that Travis Dermott is a good defenseman who is beating up on third pair competition, but I want to see him do it at a higher level before I take it for granted that he's really, really dominating. You know what I mean? So... That's my little yeah, spiel. Yeah, no, I, I, I do get what you mean. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I definitely get what you mean. And, and to be fair to Marner, I think one archetype of player that seems to get underrated by this is our playmakers, mm-hmm. um, where it doesn't necessarily account for their ability to perhaps generate above average chances directly for teammates or like how much of the offense seemingly runs through them. And it, it's a bit of a, you know, the, the, the counter argument is if they're so good at playmaking, why don't why doesn't the team just do so much better when they're on the ice? And yeah, it's a, that's a good counter argument, right? But like yeah. a guy like Nick Backstrom grades out as average in terms of play driving by this measure. And again, this is me being just being like, if you tell me Nick Backstrom is an average play driver, I'll tell you you're wrong. Yeah. Right? Like I, like, it's, I can't wrap my head around a stat that disagrees with that because like when I watch him visually, he's so good. He's amazing. Yeah. He's a Hall of Fame player. But... You know, obviously, that's not a good counter-argument for me. But yeah, it, it does make me pause, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, well, this is this is weird. And there's this, I guess, I think Bill James, uh, very influential baseball analyst, said that, like, stats should not surprise you 80% of the time. They should surprise you 20% of the time, right? So it's, like, just enough that it conforms with, 
the things that you know to be true, but then like it also surprises you in some ways. And and maybe this is it's twenty percent of the time, but yeah. it yeah the the truthful answer is I don't know exactly how perfect this is. I I, I try and use it as like an estimate of like okay it seems like this person's doing X, but I don't think it is completely immune to situation. Mm-hmm. Like and as we've seen with JVR, sometimes when a situation changes, a guy's results change really dramatically. And as we get more and more data here, it'll be interesting to to see that. Yeah, to see if we we correlate some things. I find myself thinking, and maybe this leads into what we were going to talk about generally. There's a lot of criticism of Mike Babcock and him doing stuff that is statistically counterintuitive let's say like he you know trotting out ron hansey on the first pair or like stuff that does not seem like it's smart to us and i kind of got deep down the rabbit hole in my own brain on this one so forgive me but when i'm dealing with stats and information like that i have certain things that are kind of a sanity check that's another way of talking about what i do in terms of the priors where i'm saying this is telling me something that i find really hard to believe and so I look at sort of a sanity check. I look at the basics. I'm like, okay, when I watch this guy play, do I see it? That's one thing. Uh, does he have basic results like goals and shots that kind of line up in a way with that? How far off are they? You know, I find myself going back to basics, just trying to account for, is this something really crazy going on? What am I missing here? And every now and then it just means I'm going to miss a guy who's really extraordinary. But I find myself thinking with Mike Babcock is that he's going to have the same sanity checks in some ways that most coaches have, which is, okay, are we getting outscored while this guy's on the ice? And that's a really dangerous thing. That kept Randy Carlisle in a job far longer than it should have with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Because for a while, yeah, uh, the Leafs were somehow winning. But the Ron Hainsey-Morgan Riley pairing has had 60% of the goals when it's on at even strength this season. Like... Whatever else you can say, um, they're really outscoring their competition. I don't think anyone really believes that, one, that means that it's a good idea to play Ron Hainsey with Morgan Riley if you have a choice, or two, that Ron Hainsey is the straw that stirs the drink in that situation. But I do find myself thinking, I get it, I suppose, if you have this pairing that you keep going back to that doesn't get outscored. Maybe this is just me showing way too much sympathy for the old school thought here, but it makes a certain amount of sense to me um, just to, to trust a pairing that doesn't get outscored. I, I understand. don't think he should do it. To yeah, I understand why he's making the decision, but it doesn't mean it's the right one. No, I, and to be clear, I think it's wrong. Uh, but I do also think as like a corollary of that, if you're looking at the Leafs not doing as well as you think they should, like they don't have as many standing points as you want them to, you can still say, I want to fix the Morgan Riley and Ron Hainsey pairing because I think that's dangerous and it's going to get exposed down the line. But that pairing has not driven us to losses. You know? Like, you can still say that, you know, uh, other things will get better and I want to address this, and I think you should. I just find myself thinking when people are saying, okay, when we lose, it's because of this. When that pairing isn't getting outscored, is it really because of that? You know what I mean? Like, or have we misidentified the problem or is it just we're not getting the bounces or what's going on here? I, I know that this is a bit 
kind of airy. And again, I want to emphasize, don't play Ron Hainsey with Morgan Riley if you can avoid it. But I, I think there's a lot of diagnosis of problems going on right now with the Leafs, which is kind of funny for a team that's doing as well as they still are. Uh, and a lot of it is is kind of on that level where they're just, it, it's like there's this thing that upsets me. And I attribute the loss to that. And so for stats people, it'll be Hainsey and Zaitsev. For gritty people, it'll be because the team is too soft. And, and there's a certain amount of just, if they lose, it's because of the thing that I don't like. And if they win, it's, you know, because they do something that I do like. So that's something that I'm kind of wrestling yeah. with in evaluating Mike Babcock's work so far. Yeah, I mean... I do think some of the Hainsey stuff has been a bit overblown. Um, in Arizona, I think he was their least played defenseman at five on five. And part of that is due to, I believe, the Leafs, the Leafs switching up defense pairings, I think, after the second period mm-hmm. uh, in order to juice offense. So I think they went pretty much uh, almost from jump, like Riley, Dermott, and Gardner, Muzzin. Mm-hmm. And then Hainsey's sidestep was basically the third pairing which like shows that okay Babcock kind of knows when he needs offense that's the group to go with right but he he views I think the defensive trade-offs that you get from or the defensive trade-offs that he thinks we get from Haynes or Zaitsev playing a bit more he, he values those but that said I mean I I think this is not quite like the Polak situation last year but similar in that like I think Babcock does know that his what his who his best defensemen are. It, like, yeah. it, if you gave Babcock a truth serum and you asked him, who are my three best defensemen or four best defensemen, I think he would undoubtedly say, perhaps even in this order, Riley, Gardner, Muzzin, Dermot. Yeah. I'm, I'm quite confident he would say that, just based on how he uses them when the, when the chips are down. But, like, yeah, it, it is definitely very frustrating to see that line or that pairing kind of get trotted out again. I, I do think we're going to see more experimentation right and i'm not i'm not at like defcon one yet where you know if it's game one of the playoffs and uh, opening face off bergeron marsh and pashana can i see riley hainsey there i'm like oh no (laughs) no thank you um but for now i'm maybe this is naive me i'm just kind of hoping there's a bit more experimentation and that you know he's just trying to figure out some other stuff and hopefully um we'll get a pairing that we can rely on and is a bit more solid in that sense. Uh, yeah. But it, yeah, it's it, it's tough right now. There, there, there's a lot of fiddling going on, and that does seem to be a security blanket to some extent, the Riley-Hainsey-Garner, or sorry, the Riley-Hainsey pairing in particular. Yeah, and absolutely. Like, you know, he has biases like every, everyone else, and you'll go back to what you know or what you feel like has worked, uh, you know, when the chips are down, and I think that that's kind of instinctive. It doesn't mean it's right. But there's a lot of chatter now about, like, real frustration with Mike Babcock. And I think the truth is it's because the Leafs are on a standings point pace that is not much higher than last year. Uh, I saw a tweet actually just earlier this morning from Drag Like Pull, and he correctly pointed out... I was actually out, just about to mention that. Yeah, and he correctly pointed out that last year the Leafs won a bunch of shootouts, and this year they haven't been in any shootouts, which, frankly, I'm happy about. Shootouts are kind of bullshit. But... Uh, the Leafs are doing really well in a lot of respects, but there's a fear that we're still lining up to face Boston in the first round. We may not have home ice against Boston in the first round. As of this morning, we do yeah, not. Yeah, we're basically we... tied with them. 
Yeah, we're one point back with one game in hand. Um, if it comes down to a tie right now, we have the edge in regulation wins. Um, but it's really, really tight. The thing is, is that the Leafs have, in general, notwithstanding they just farted away a game against the Coyotes last night, in general, the Leafs have been playing really well lately. Um, their record has been good. Their numbers have been good. They've put up 7-2-1 their last 10. The problem is Boston had went 7-0-3. Like, they got a point in every one of their last 10 games, and they won most of them. Uh, it's tough when your competition does that. There's not a whole lot you can do when your competition does that, except hope that they cool off uh, a little bit. And, you know, when we, you know, we talk about, like, the fear that people have that it's going to go down like last season went down, it might. Uh, I can't say that that's not going to yeah. happen. I still think this team... I genuinely think that they are better. I like their chances against Boston. But, you know, am I comfortable facing them? Hell no. You know, I would rather play anyone else um, than Boston in the first round, partly just because I'm sick of them, but also partly because, yeah, you know, you do worry if, that they're just like a terrible matchup for us. So that fear, I think, infuses yeah, a lot I... of how people talk about the Leafs right now. So Absolutely, and... It it's understandable right like we've commented a bunch of times that like hey this Leafs team is good and yet there's still no guarantee they're getting out of the first round they don't have an easy first round matchup at all even if it's Montreal mm -hmm. it's like I think the Leafs are favorites against Boston and against Montreal but mm -hmm. I think it's like at most 60 40 yeah like like it, if, it's, it, yeah. it's not big at all yeah I I mean it doesn't feel certainly any bigger than that I think the Leafs would have a better chance at a cup in any other division. Like, I firmly believe that. Um, you know, you can argue the Central. Yeah, even in is... the Pacific, which is which has... Yeah. Yeah. The I Pacific mean, has have... some top-heavy teams, but I think I think the Leafs would be better if they were in that division. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, that sucks. But, um, you know, I, this was Washington's curse for the longest time. Was they're doomed to run in the Penguins forever. Uh, in, in our case, you know, we're with Boston, who are... Killing it right now. And then Tampa Bay, who are so far ahead of the rest of the NHL that, like, you can't even see them anymore. Um, and yet I feel more confident playing Tampa than Boston at this point. As crazy as that sounds. Yeah, I, I would too. I'd rather face Tampa in the first round than Boston. Yeah, I, I think so. I just, it feels like we match up better. Um, it didn't want, you, it, it's, it's a comfortable match against Tampa in some respect where it's like, Okay, you know, you're going to get your chances, we're going to get our chances. Let's see who's goaltending is better and who's shooting is better. Yeah, you know, that could go either way. And uh, so this was true as of yesterday morning. I haven't checked it since. But the Leafs are actually the second best team in the NHL in goals percentage at 5-on-5. Five five. And the team ahead of them is not Tampa, it's the Islanders, who are having an insane goaltending run. And they're playing good defensive hockey. But, like, the Leafs are actually, like, a really, really effective 5-on-5 five five team this year. It's just, on their special teams, they've fallen back to merely a little above, a bit above average. And Tampa is crucifying people with their power play and have a very good penalty kill. So paradoxically, the fact that no one ever seems to get whistled for calls in Leaf games might actually sort of benefit us against Tampa because they might been, well, dominate us in the special teams battle. So I'm, I keep thinking, you know, if we ever get to face them, I wouldn't favor us, but we could do okay. Um, you know, Boston, the fear of Boston is just, if we lose to them again, it makes this whole season 
uh, feel like a failure. And there's no getting around that. Yeah. And even if you can say, yeah, absolutely, it, it does. That's not fair, but that's just how it is in this business. So, yeah. Hope that doesn't happen. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean that's all that's all you can do. I mean unless you're a player in which case, you know, you can do a bit more, but like it's Boston's a really good team, man. Boston's a really really good team. And you know, I was hoping they would fall back a bit without having Pasternak for the next little bit, but they have done the opposite of that, which is very annoying. Yeah, uh I think you know, it's clear that David Pasternak was actually holding back the Boston Bruins. Um that's, you know, Yeah, they the should trade him to Boston. Yeah, I I mean I'd take him. Let's just get the most absurd winger group we can imagine. Um, yeah, so give him Connor that, Brown and Zaitsev. Oh God. Yeah, so I think in trying to figure out why people are so angry with a team that is doing so well in the macro perspective of things is that fear. I think a lot of it is just wrapped up in Boston. Like the Leafs have more regulation wins than any team but Tampa. They are flirting with second place in the league pretty constantly. They're, since Nylander got back, they're doing well at 5-on-5. Five five. But that said, there's a caveat to that that you pointed out before we went on here. Um, so the Leafs are doing yeah, well. Yeah, the caveat yeah. is, you know... It... Oh, sorry, I'll go ahead. Yeah, so yeah. if you, like, splice the Leafs season into, like, post-Nylander, they're, mm-hmm. like, eighth in the league in, in Corsi or something like that. And the difference between eighth and like third is maybe a percentage point and a half, right? It's not, it's not a huge amount, which is like a couple shots a game. So I'm, I'm comfortable saying that once you're in like the 52, 53% tier, you're like pretty close to being one of the better teams in the league, right? And there's not a, there's generally not a ginormous difference between teams at that point. But one of the teams that's ahead of them is Boston, who are like fourth in that time span with a couple percent, maybe a percentage point and a bit ahead of Toronto in course a percentage. So about the same tier, but Boston's a little bit better. Now, if you look at from January 1st, it's the same thing. The Leafs are, like, again, 8th, and Boston's, again, like, 4th. And if you look at from February 1st, again, it's the exact same thing. So, like, the Leafs have been very good at 5-on-5. Boston has been, like, slightly better pretty much the entire year. And I believe a similar thing happens when you look at expected goals, except Boston is worse offensively and better defensively. So, it's just, like, shit, they're, again, I mean, I've said this a bunch of times on this podcast. They're a really good team. They're a really, really good team. Um, their weakness is their lack of depth scoring, which they might address by like getting friggin' Artem- Artemi Panarin. Uh, and if they do, then they are the favorites in that series, like just straight up. Yeah, that's um, uh, bad. Yeah, and, and like the Leafs, the Leafs' chances in that series rest on them playing the Bergeron line even, and then winning pretty much every other matchup. Because realistically, you're gonna lose that Bergeron matchup, and you just have to like lose it by not a huge amount. You know that. The thing that uh, that pains me about talking about the Bergeron thing is that um, for like 50 odd years and stuff, like half the European countries uh, leading up to World War One had basically like one plan in the event of, you know, France had one plan for Germany and Germany had one plan for France. And they just kept coming back around to it. And when World War One mm-hmm. settled down into stalemate and went nowhere, it, it seemed like no one could come up with a better plan than the war of attrition that everyone had foreseen um, after 1915. So it's like, I just feel like that with the Bergeron line. It's like, well, here we are again. Our whole plan is hope to neutralize the Bergeron line. Like it's been for four years. You know, <laughs> it's like, you'd like to think that with Tavares and with all the growth that we've had with our players, that we're going to have some sort of innovation that we would have some sort of thing that's 
better than that. Or you would hope that they would get worse because, you know, Patrice Bergeron is not that young. Um, and yet it still comes back around to we got to beat them on forward depth. And we could, but it's very hard to say anything against that semi-rational fear in the back of your brain that Boston is going to take our lunch money. And I think that infests a lot of the criticism of Mike Babcock, which I think is a little disproportionate. Um, not that I agree with him on everything, but like the team is doing pretty well as far as we can measure. But like that is, yeah. is kind of making it tough. But that said, what should Mike Babcock do differently <laughs> since we're going to complain about him? <laughs> um, okay, so we, we talked about Nylander's success and we caveated it with, okay, he's facing easier lineups and, uh, you know, there's no guarantee that his shots percentage and expected goals percentage carries when he moves into a larger role. Um, so this is moving moving him up and rewarding him a little bit. I would like to see him with Matthews. I think this they have a one plus one equals three type of thing where Nylander mm-hmm. is such a good passer and Matthews is such a good shooter. And Kaplan is is great and he's a very good play driver. His play driving numbers are in fact better than Nylander's. They're better than almost anyone on the teams. And mm-hmm. in fact, they're in the top 30 of the league in terms of course RAPM. But he is not the passer that Nylander is. Yeah. Right? So I I would, you know, I, I want to see either Hyman Matthews Nylander or Janssen Matthews Nylander. Right? Like, let's, yeah. let's give our best player the tools, or our best offensive player the tools he needs to shine. Right? Yeah. And then a big part of that is also, like, let's just, let's reduce Marlowe's role. He, he's not cutting it in that top line role. Kadri has the ability to drag him up and down the ice. You know, that's basically the only guy that Marlowe's been successful with this year from a shots perspective. Mm-hmm. If you run those two, Kapanen, Kadri, sorry, yeah, Kapanen, Kadri, and Marlowe, right? So running those two guys with Marlowe, I think they can help him. And he's opportunistic enough still that he can capitalize on some of the odd man rushes that Ka- that Kapanen's going to generate and things like that. So that that's basically what I do for the forward lineup. Yeah. My whole goal with the forward lineup is one, get Marlowe away from Austin Matthews because I hate that. And two, do not put Connor Brown on an offensive line ever again. And by the, with that team, the with the team that we have, that means put him on the fourth line forever. I know that I'm like getting borderline irrational about this, but I hate watching Connor Brown try to do offensive things. He's bad at it, and it makes me upset. <laughs> I don't really have anything else to say about that. I am borne out by the numbers on this uh, in a lot of respects, just because he seems to really slow down uh, Nylander and Kadri a lot of the time uh, when they're playing. Like they, they look a lot better with Marlowe, and as we were discussing, this season, if your numbers look a lot better with Marlowe, whoever Marlowe is replacing is embarrassing himself. <laughs> Now, like, you know, and I know that, you know, we love this idea of Connor Brown, utility guy, hardworking dude, defensive player. Look, he's a good utility winger, but like, ah, I, I don't know if I just reached a breaking point with Connor Brown as an offensive winger in the last couple of weeks or something. But it's just like after several years of watching not a lot of offense happen with him effectively, aside from his first year, which was fluky. 
I just find myself thinking, I'm so tired of this. So, yeah. I like That yeah. actually bothers no, I, me I, more I definitely... than the defense does. So, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing is, like, let's... I think the biggest change is actually just, like, move Janssen, swap Janssen and Marlowe. Janssen's our best left winger. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's clear. I, I You know, God willing, he's not too badly injured. It sounds like he's going to be fine. But... Uh, yeah, and actually, I'd be fine with... um I'd be fine with Janssen, Matthews, Kapanen as well. Yeah. Like, even uh, if you don't want to move Nienander and Kaj, if you want to say, you know what, let's let these two just absolutely punk third lines. Mm-hmm. Sure, that that's justifiable to me, but let, let's give Matthews a bit more help offensively. Yeah, because I think he needs something. We talked about this before, but he's brilliant, but he's not complete. Um, and you know, no player is totally complete in that sense, but he needs some help, I think, to really reach his his very best level. Uh, so I'd like to see more of that. The defense, um, you know. Look, I, I think you trade Nikita Zaitsev in June when you get the chance. In the time being, I would like to scale him back. I really would. Um, the I'm problem probably is we have, like three guys we want to scale back. Yeah, like yeah, let's Actually, scale it's back just, everyone. It's just, two. it's just Hainsey and Zaitsev. Really, we want to we want to scale back, but like it just the, Babcock's already mixing and matching a fair bit with them. Like even within games, yeah, it ha- recently has not been consistent. Um, you know. Minute zero through minute sixty pairings, so yeah. it's a bit harder to assess here. He he's very clearly still trying to find the right formula. I think. Yeah, he's still very he, much mixing and matching. Um, so yeah, it's good, and you know now's the time to do it, right? But uh, it's more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I do just worry about Zaitsev in terms of the results. Um, they just don't seem like they're there for me. Uh, maybe I've I've gone off the wall here, but like. I'm actually more bothered by him than by Hainsey almost at this point. Um, just mm-hmm. because I, I don't like the puck on his stick. He does a lot of things well, but I don't like the puck on his stick ever. And that's a problem. Um, so in terms of what would I do in terms of restructuring the lineup, I should put my money where my mouth is. I would say um, Janssen, Matthews, Kapanen, Hyman, Tavares, Marner, Marlow, Kadri, Nylander, fourth line, I don't care as much. Any combination of those players who are left over is kind of okay um, at this point. Yeah. Except I'd like to play Tyler Ennis. I like that he has a little bit of offense there, but you know. Um, with the defensive pairings, I mean, yeah. le- left to my own devices, I probably try uh, Muzzin Riley and then Gardner Dermott. And so I do agree with Leafs Twitter on that. Um, and then you, you put Hainsey. Zaitsev as your third pair who kills a lot of penalties still. So, Mike Babcock, please respond to my emails. But, um, <laughs> I, I just, you know, I, so I share, I guess, a lot of the feelings that Leafs Twitter has on this, but I just find myself wondering how much this is really going to move the needle, I guess. I don't know. Maybe this is just misplaced confidence in Mike Babcock that I've always had, but I just, I find myself wondering, is this really going to fix this team? I think it can make it better. I think it's worth doing. I think it's the thing that the coach can do. Um, Because, you know, the coach can't really change the personnel too much. But, you know, I I suppose just the fear overhanging it is still, 
we probably will drop Austin in round one. And if we lose to them, which we might, no matter what Mike Babcock does, that's going to be kind of depressing. Maybe I've just gotten fatalistic at this point of the year. Just filled with, like, despair and regret. But, yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing, imagine what it feels like from Tampa's perspective, where they have this, like, they're having this record-breaking season, this, like, unprecedentedly good season. And Mm -hmm. come April, it pretty much doesn't matter. Yeah. Right? Like, if if they lose four times in seven games, eh, too bad, you're out. Yeah. And, you know, this is the thing about... The system that we've got. I mean, everyone likes to make fun of that 67 sound tweet where he said that the president's trophy is the true chest of merit. And, you know, look, the playoffs are what we care about. The playoffs are really what I care about. But it does mean that you are going to be left feeling sometimes like you spent a year investing in this version of the team. And in 10 days, they piss it all away. And that's kind yeah, of what you do I in mean, sports, you know? We've, so. we've made we as in like North American sports has made the decision to trade off some accuracy in crowning the quote unquote best team mm-hmm. versus excitement and suspense. Yeah. Right. Um, and if you compare it to like European soccer, you know, it's quite different. Uh, granted European soccer has cup competitions, which provide that sort of suspense and randomness, but they're, they're, the league competitions there are predominantly about rewarding everyone. Are yeah. rewarding the best. Sorry, rewarding the best team over the course of the of the season. Um, and in the NHL, for a variety of reasons, that's kind of unviable because then you you start having the need for balanced players, right? And you know, pretty much all of England will fit into the state of Texas. Yeah. So, so travel is <laughs> much easier. It's easier to create a balanced right. schedule. Here, yeah, dealing with North America, it's it's more difficult. So. I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, playoffs shouldn't be, shouldn't happen. It's not fair. And it's like, you know what? Sports is entertainment, and ultimately, playoff hockey is amazing. Playoff hockey is just—it's my favorite sport to watch. Right? Yeah. Like, I, I love lots of sports in general, but playoff hockey, nothing beats it. Yeah, just the action. I mean, if you get like an overtime thing in the playoff, I don't know that there's edge of your seat moments like that really to compare with that across sports. I obviously I'm biased in favor of hockey, but like that's that's the game at its best. And you know, mm-hmm. I, I get the the stat argument which is, you know, we should be rewarding the most meritorious team or something. But every now and then it gets trotted out as something it's like, you know, the winner should just be the president's trophy or something like that. And I'm like, I am never so convinced that like there's something that like some nerds believe that 99.99% of hockey fans would like violently object to <laughs> like it's just this is the opposite of why we watch the game as you say it's an entertainment product right and that's where the entertainment is yeah i mean if that was the case so. this year yeah. it would actually be boring as hell because like you'd have a bunch of teams fighting for second place which mm-hmm. may or not mean anything now in european soccer one of the reasons this the league system where the champion is just whoever whoever has the best result over the regular season or the season <laughs> since there's mm-hmm. no playoffs there um one of the reasons that works is because there are kind of other important cutoffs throughout the rest of the table, right? Like, the, the bottom three teams get relegated. Right. So you have relegation battles to worry about. Um, the top four teams in the, te- in the English League, anyways, are they qualify for um, higher-level competitions against a bunch of other really strong European teams, which is quite prestigious and generates a lot of money and things like that. So mm-hmm. there's another cutoff point there. And then there's, like, a lower-tier European competition, which... 
uh, like the fifth place team gets. So there's races there. But even then, you get to a point in, you know, towards the end of the season where a bunch of mid-table teams, teams that are not going to get relegated, but also are not going to qualify for any European competition, they just start giving up. Mm. They're just like, like yeah, we don't, we don't care anymore. There's like no suspense for a lot of mid-table teams. Now, in the NHL, where you don't really have those natural kind of cutoff points where you qualify for additional competitions or relegation is a thing, um, that's just not possible. And don't get me started on why relegation is not possible in North America. Yeah, there are a thousand reasons why that wouldn't make sense, even though it is fun to think of in a video game sense. Mm-hmm. The travel alone it. makes it impossible. Yeah, uh, like, no. So, <laughs> let's just leave it at that. No. But, uh, yeah. And, like, yeah. and teams would teams would go under if they don't have the... Like, the the fact of the matter is, and you can argue that this makes North America a less... a weaker sporting environment. Um, most non-top-tier leagues are not even close to running a profit. There's too many yeah. other options in, in these cities. Most top-tier cities do not give a shit about... AHL hockey or the G League in the NBA or AAA baseball. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's just there's too much going on. You look at Toronto. Toronto has uh, a team in like every major professional sport in North America except football where they have the CFL. And, you know, the Argos infamously do not draw all that well in the last decade. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you have so many entertainment options. And then outside of sports, you have, a you know, a hundred things to do in this city. Um, so, yeah, like, th- there's no way that you could survive uh, relegating a key team down to the lesser leagues. I and mean, also, the, the fact that AHL teams are affiliated with NHL teams makes it tougher, too. Because now you need, like, independent AHL teams. And there isn't really a market for that. Like, I mean, a lot of AHL teams survive because their NHL team owns them. Like, that's why the Marlies yeah. survived. The Marlies are not even close to profitable. But the Leafs are saying, yep, this is basically a Leafs expense that we're willing to bear. Yeah. You're not going to have... You're not going to have 30 teams in pro route, let alone 60 to make a, you know, top-tier league. Or even 40 if you want to contract the league. You're not going to have that many markets in North America that support uh, hockey when there's the potential that you go down. Mm-hmm. Right? And then a team that comes up is most likely going to be poorer. Like, it... it becomes really tricky for them to scale up properly. Yeah. So it, for, I, for a lot of reasons, it's it's not going to happen and it doesn't work here in North America. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm i glad that we just had that little discursion because we see it and it's like a cool idea in some ways, but it's just like nothing about it is remotely viable. It's a fun and idea just, until you think about it for a minute. Yeah. Like so many things in life. But yeah. also the Leafs would be like, Super relegated for the period from like 2007 to 2013. We'd be like the 12th tier. We're facing yeah, like no, yeah. GTHL teams. <laughs> Eight-year-old Connor yeah. McDavid's kicking our ass. <laughs> Should, shouldn't have signed Ryan O'Byrne. That was a real real thing when he's getting turnstiled by teenagers. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, bringing that back around... Um, I guess, you know, this is the thing about the playoffs is that right now in February, this is kind of the tough time here uh, where we can basically see a very probable, not all that satisfying potential outcome. And as much as, you know, I want Mike Babcock to optimize, I've said I think there are things he can do to get better um, in terms of this team. Although, I you know, I give a lot of respect for his knowledge, but just... I kind of feel like it's the nature of the system, you know, Tampa Bay and all to their credit, 
assembled one of the best teams I've ever seen. It's not so much on the Leafs that they did that. Uh, the Leafs have assembled a very good team of their own now through some pretty decent management and mostly some high draft picks. But like, I don't think that they could realistically expect to catch Tampa. Um, they would have needed to get lucky. Certainly it's not going to happen now. And now it's like they can play quite well and still end up in the same situation as last year. And if you want to believe in the moral theory of sports where you get what you deserve, well, sometimes you just get what the system gives you. And that's going to be probably a first-round matchup against Boston. So, sorry. This has been the Sunshine Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that That's the way it is, unfortunately. So, yeah. um, do you think that wraps it up for us? Yeah, I think so. The biggest thing I would note is, as much as I've said all that sort of stuff, the Leafs are a good team, and the Leafs can certainly beat Boston. They were oh, 20 yeah. minutes away from doing it last year with the worst team. Dude, Boston is, like, not happy about facing us either. No, I can believe that. Now that they'll be like, well, we have our voodoo magic, but it's like, you know, I don't want to play a team that can trot out uh, Tavares, Matthews, Kadri on three different lines. That's terrifying. Yeah, uh, it's a so, really, yeah. really strong team. You know, well, I mean, we, we made this joke before about the Bears being as scared of you as you are of them, but I think that's actually true. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. All right, cool. Um, so thank you all for listening. You can find all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.